0: Because I think it illustrates just more and more how he does not have what it takes to
1: fulfill the duties of this office. You remember her from The Apprentice, but more recently, she was a former assistant to Donald Trump. My guest today is Amarosa Manigault Newman. Amarosa provides an eye-opening look into the corruption and controversy of the Trump administration in her New York Times bestselling book, Unhinged, an insider's account of the Trump White House. The former West Wing aide rocked the White House with stories of Trump using lewd, sexist, and racist language in a tell-all book that prompted Donald Trump to lash out viciously at her. Trump called Omarosa a doll, a lying lowlife, and he even filed an arbitration claim against her seeking millions, alleging she had violated a non-disclosure agreement. But none of these aggressive and unprecedented attacks by a sitting president have stopped Omarosa from being an outspoken critic of Trump and his administration. The former reality show actress, adjunct professor, and pastor has a lot to say about life inside the White House, the 2020 election, and what we can expect from Trump in the last days of this contentious presidential election. Welcome to I am so happy that we have this opportunity to sit down and talk. So much has changed in both of our lives since I was last, you know, with you. Uh, for you, you relocated right to Jacksonville, Florida, and you are married to a minister. Tell us about that. <laughs> yes, I got
0: married to Pastor John Allen Newman, and he has pastored here in. Jacksonville, Florida for 36 years at the sanctuary of Mount Calvary. And so um, not only did I get married, but I became the first lady of Mount Calvary. And I love serving in pastoral ministry with my husband. And I absolutely love Jacksonville.
1: Well, fantastic. I I love to hear that. I actually have a god sister that lives in Jacksonville, and I've been there a couple of times, so I know it's a lovely city. But today, we're going to be talking a lot about, you know, you and the work that you did in the White House, and obviously, we're going to get to your book. But before we get to the book and some of the time that you spent uh, in the Trump administration, I, I want to ask you about your days at The Apprentice. And I know there's been a lot of talk about that relationship that you had with Donald Trump, you know, while you were a part of that reality show. Uh, tell us what was it like working? Look at that picture. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, um, I was fresh
0: out of uh, fresh out of college. I was still in my twenties. Uh, we're talking seventeen years ago. And there was this advertisement about a business reality show where if you won, you would go on to lead one of Donald Trump's companies. Now, Donald was uh, marketed back then as this incredible mega businessman, um, and he was going to choose an apprentice. And so I applied and out of a quarter of a million people who applied, I was selected to appear on the show. You're absolutely right. It was um, a crazy time. Um, to go from anonymous to famous overnight, but it was an incredible journey, you know, to be a part of that show.
1: And when Trump decided to run for office, there was a lot of focus and attention on, you know, the people that were a part of the show and Trump's conduct while he, you know, was hosting that show. And one of the things that came up was, you know, did he make any racist comments? Or, you know, did he use the N-word? Do you have any recollection of him, you know, using the N word or making any racist comment when you work with him on The Apprentice? Well, I'm so glad that you asked about this because this is a big part of my book, Unhinged. I
0: talk about the fact that when we were doing the campaign in uh, 2015 and one of the producers came out and shared a story about the production and behind the scenes and how Donald Trump would often use the N word. It was probably one of the, um, one of the most painful kind of episodes to hear about because here I was uh, a part of that show and behind the scenes behind our back, he was talking about Kwame and I, and, um, most recently his niece came out, Mary Trump to reveal in her book, about her uncle that Donald Trump used the word throughout her childhood while they were growing up, that it was quite common for him to say these things. So um, it has been eye-opening to say the least um, that not only did he talk about myself and the other African-American contestant on the show, but that he often used it in his home, with his family, with his colleagues. And so, uh, yeah, that was quite a revelation on her behalf, but also to hear the people in production who have been bold enough to come forward in spite of the threats of the lawsuits, including the ones that I'm facing right now.
1: So. (laughs) We're gonna talk a lot about those losses a little later, but I wanna ask you, so you're a black woman, obviously. You're on a show, you fresh out of college, great opportunity you learn that the person who I assume at that point you looked up to had a lot of respect for is using that kind of language. And then you fast forward to 2015 when he decides to run for president. How was that shift from knowing that this is a a white man who's used the N-word, has talked negatively about African-Americans to you then making the shift to saying, I'm going to support his campaign and go out and actually campaign with him for president?
0: Well, let's Give the timeline because you jumped from The Apprentice till now. So let's break it down Uh, from 2003 till um, 2015. I had done three seasons of Apprentice with Donald Trump. And in fact, um, when I first joined the show, I was the only African-American woman. But as you saw in the celebrity versions, so many African-American entertainers, you know, from Nene to Star Joe's, Dionne Warwick, we all thought that being a part of The Apprentice was a great opportunity to raise charity and to elevate the profile about the work that we were doing in the nonprofit space. And so in the campaign, when it we joined the campaign and all of these things started coming out, every time that Donald Trump... And I had a conversation unlike other corporations I worked in and I heard rumors about, you know, my boss being this or that. I had an opportunity to walk directly to him and to confront him. And one of the, the I guess, most dramatic scenes in unhinged as I talk about is um, confronting him about the Central Park situation that he Park, wanted to actually call for the death penalty. Yes. And as well to confront him in 2016, when Bill Pruitt came out and talked about the things that he said in production. Um, and obviously Donald Trump denied those things to me, denied saying those things are denied, uh, using those, uh, words as he referred to me in Kwame, but I went directly to him and confronted him about those things.
1: I just want to make sure I'm glad, you know, you're, you're helping me and the audience understand the timeline. The confronting him about using the N-word, did that happen while you were still a part of the show or did that happen in 2015? This was in 2016. The revelation that uh, came forward during
0: the campaign was 2016 when Bill Pruitt, this is in the fall of 2016, and Bill Pruitt gave this interview on NPR where he talked about what was happening in production and these accusations. And, and he didn't say the N-word, he said Donald Trump used racial slurs and in and, and, and much worse. He said, if you think the Access Hollywood tape is bad, then you should wait to hear these other tapes. The interviewer said, were they racial? When he says, oh, they were much worse. So those revelations, I was the first, and I went and confronted him and said, what did you say? And were you talking about me? Were you talking about Connie? Um, so as I stated, um, he denied those things. Fast forward to a month later, he becomes president of the United States. And yes, I decide to accept the offer to go in and be the only African-American woman in the administration.
1: I wanna go back a little to 2015 again, Omarosa, because you and I actually met working a lot uh, on the Dr. Drew show on HLN, frequently uh, yeah. on shows frequently in the green rooms together. And, and I, I have some recollection of, you know, being on Dr. Drew at that time. And, you know, the presidential election was getting heated. Uh, and I know from conversations you and I had that you had previously worked in the Clinton administration, correct? Yes, I am um, right out of my
0: <laughs> right out of my master's program at Howard University, I accepted a job working first for Vice President Al Gore's office. I stayed there for a year and a half, and then I accepted another appointment to work in presidential personnel for President Bill Clinton. And so, yes, I've worked in both a Democratic White House and a Republican White House.
1: So how was that transition? You know, did you get a lot of flack from your family, from your friends when they heard that you were going to work for Donald Trump? And, and, you know, how did the black community respond? Because obviously, if you worked in the Clinton administration, there was an assumption that you were a Democrat or at least Democratic leaning. So what was the response like in 2015, 2016, when you started campaigning for Trump?
0: Well, first of all, you have to remember when I first met Donald Trump, he was a Democrat. So <laughs> not only was he a Democrat, but all of his children were Democrats. Half of his cabinet are Democrats. And so um, and he was pro-choice and he was all about, you know, economic advancements. And all these extreme views were not known to us because he was a Democrat. He then transitioned as a Republican. He he, he kind of toyed around with the idea of running with the Green Party for a while, I think, in 2014. Um, he was thinking about it, but he eventually ended up running as a Republican. But when I met him, let's be clear, he was a Democrat. Um, in terms of the reaction uh, to my accepting this appointment, many of my family members and my peers felt that it was important that we have someone at the table, that there was someone at the table advocating for policies uh, for, as you can see, you're showing the photos of the HBCU summit, my fighting for black farmers and uh, civil rights issues and social justice issues, even water uh, funding for Flint. These are things that I got a chance to work on and they recognized that if I hadn't accepted that appointment, that Donald Trump might not ever, and even to this day, have another African-American woman in his administration in any way. And we don't have the luxury of sitting back for four years and saying, we just won't engage and we'll just let them make decisions because we're seeing the impact of that, particularly as we go through this pandemic. Um, and they're distributing billions of dollars of relief funds to small businesses, uh, payroll protection funds, tax uh, reform. You have to have someone at the table. If you aren't at the table, there's a saying, then you're on the menu.
1: Yeah, and I definitely can appreciate what you're saying in terms of some people who thought that was a really smart thing to do, because, yes, having some representation in the White House was important. But did you get you know, the opposite of that? Did you have African-Americans saying, how can you? Stand with someone who had his history because whether we knew about the N-word or not, we did know about the Central Park Five and him calling for the execution of them. We knew about the discrimination housing lawsuits that he and his family had been a part of in New York and his really checkered past in terms of sayings and things that he had done in terms of of his relationships with African Americans. So even though Donald Trump, and I think you're right, you know, he may have been a Democrat, he may have been pro-choice, he may have been pro a lot of things, but he also was very much known as someone who was racist. Well, I,
0: I appreciate the question, um, but let's, let's all recognize that the Donald Trump right now I don't have any dealings with. I don't have a relationship with this man. I don't support or co-sign him. As I stated at the beginning of this interview, when I met him in 2003, Donald Trump was being packaged and presented to the world as a wholesome businessman, a family man who built this family empire. Sure, now the stories about the the cases from uh, the housing cases from 77 and the things that are happening, now those things are being magnified. But you have to understand that when I met him, those things weren't magnified. But now I think that as you examine, when you know better, you do better. And certainly that information is important, particularly to viewers who are now making decisions about whether or not to support him. And I wholeheartedly say we know now the full picture and the scope of this man and his dysfunction. And there's no way that we should support him. He's just completely deficient.
1: I want to go behind the scenes because one, one of the reasons I've been dying to talk to you is because you have a very unique position. You, you knew him when you just said he was being packaged as his family man, as a successful businessman. Then you saw him on a campaign trail. And then you actually went into the White House where you saw him operate as the president of the United States. So for those of us who, you know, get a glimpse of, of Donald Trump through the media, We have so many questions about this erratic behavior that we see. Uh, I want to start with the Leslie Stahl interview. You know, he stormed out of that interview after being so dismissive and so disruptive during that interview with Leslie Stahl. You know, I don't know because she was a woman or just because of theatrics, but, you know, is that that behavior that we saw, was that what you witnessed in the White House? Donald Trump not being able to sit and answer tough questions, particularly if they were coming from a woman?
0: Yeah that actually is a term uh, a tamer version <laughs> of some of the things that I've seen Um, and observed with Donald Trump, he would have these explosive episodes where he would yell at everyone around him from the military age to the staff, to the securities, to secret service, to whoever was around him. Um, He was known for these tantrums. And if he were in the middle of an important briefing, some of them were national security briefings, and he didn't feel like being there, he would get up and storm out, or he would kick the people out. And you've heard often about his short attention span. I was so concerned, particularly when we were engaged in some of the high-level campaigns of war that we are currently in, and those briefings were so critical that Donald Trump's attention span was actually going to destroy this country, because he did not read He did not focus. He never listened to the generals or the chiefs of of staff, I mean, or the joint chiefs for that matter. And so it became more and more apparent that he was having a decline and that he was unable to fulfill the responsibilities and the duties of his office.
1: And so, Marissa, for those that don't know what a senior advisor is, some of our viewers, you know, may be a little confused about what a senior advisor does. As in your role, how often were you literally in these rooms with him? Were you seeing him every day in terms of, you know, official meetings that were taking place at the White House? Yes. So the way the White House is structured, the president appoints 100
0: of his closest advisors. And the level is special assistant deputy assistant, and the highest appointment you can get um, in the White House, non-cabinet position, is assistant to the president. And I was one of 25 assistants to the presidents that covered different portfolios that oversaw the running of the government. The 25 of us divided up the time for the president. And so we had to fight for our slots. So we were allocated 15 to 20 minutes a day with the president, depending on what was pressing. In my case, racial issues, um, issues regarding women, business, veterans, and African-Americans, that was my portfolio. Those things were popping every single day. So um, more than often, I would get my 15 to 20 minutes to brief the president, which by the way, in presidential time is significant. Um, And I would have my 15 minutes to tell him about whatever issues, to fight for whatever funding, and to get him to sign key presidential documents, documents that only he could sign
1: great explanation thank you for clarifying in terms of you know what the hierarchy is so you were in contact also with lots of other staff people correct you talked about that 100 you know special assistants that work to the president mm-hmm. you know when we see someone like the, the current press secretary Kaylee, at that last <laughs> interview you know who runs in with this big big book and you know this is the, the purported health plan that no one else in the country knows about You know, what is someone like Kaylee, and you can't get into her mind, but I'm really asking about staff. Like, you know, what was the staff saying when they were asked to do those things that made them look ridiculous? You have a master's degree. Kaylee has a law degree. So we're talking about really smart people, right? (laughs) What were the things that made us look ridiculous? Um, Sitting there half the time made you look
0: ridiculous. But I survived two press secretaries, the first being Sean Spicer and the second being Sarah Huckabee Sanders, another part of my portfolio was being the director of communications, of course, for the Office of Public Liaison, which means that I had to sit through half of those briefings, and they were quite painful. So to see um, Kaylee have to go in and do what many of us in the comms shop had to do, which is we would come up with a communication plan, and that would be the plan for the week, and then Donald Trump would tweet and he would blow up the entire plan. The messaging would be out of the window. So I have to tell you one, we would say one thing to a reporter or go out and do a press interview and say we're gonna talk about infrastructure. You know, everybody wants to talk about stronger bridges and buildings and schools and that sort of thing. But Donald Trump would be tweeting insults to another uh, prime minister or insulting a country or calling a congressman names and our message. Messaging was never quite heard because as a member of the comm staff, the one thing that you learn is Donald Trump is going to destroy your week, your messaging, and any hope of having a semblance of organization or any logical plan for the country, because that's just what it did.
1: And as a staff person, you all had absolutely no control over his Twitter account or what he would tweet. Uh, And you would just have to try to recover because what we see is oftentimes the press secretary, you know, trying to play catch up and clean up a statement that has been made or a tweet that's been sent. Uh, I want to ask you about COVID. Were you surprised that Donald Trump, Melania Trump and the poor son Barron all, uh, you know, have COVID or had COVID at one point? Um, I'm not surprised because they were very reckless
0: and they disregarded the guidelines of their own CDC. So if you disregard uh, the request to simply wear a mask, then you're going to expose yourself to the chance of getting COVID. Um, But I want to stress this point, Ariva, because during our transition, we were given a briefing about key national security issues, things that were pressing, dangers that were presented to our country, not just terrorist attacks, but um, all types of other attacks. And one of the things that we got a briefing about, and I remember so very clearly, was the threat of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the Obama administration had left this incredible playbook on what to do if in fact there was a virus such as this. Unfortunately, um, his advisors in that particular area decided to fire the entire staff that was responsible for this plan to combat a virus. And they threw the playbook out the window. And that is why we now see over 220,000 Americans who have succumbed to COVID-19.
1: Yeah, we, we've heard so many members of the Obama administration talk about that playbook and the plan that was in place and the office and the staff that was there to address uh, a pandemic such as this and, and how you know that office was dismantled and the playbook pretty much thrown out the window. One of the things that I think always bugged me about Trump's own bout with COVID was the refusal of his doctors to tell us when he had last tested negatively And the shenanigans around the test, you know, with that first presidential debate, you know, do do you think we should trust the date that Donald Trump revealed was the first day that he tested positively, given, you know, kind of the history of lies coming out of that White House? No, no.
0: <laughs> and I'll sum that up for you. Uh, I was treated at Walter Reed Hospital as a part of the executive medicine program. All of the assistants to the president, the 25 I mentioned, we all had access to that amazing team of, of doctors and they're phenomenal. But Donald Trump has made them somewhat of a laughingstock because he has not allowed them to tell the American people the truth. And the truth of the matter is we have kind of surmised that Donald Trump probably had COVID the night of the debate. And uh, the reason that he is trying to avoid to reveal his last negative test was probably because he knew that he put other people at risk. Now, in terms of the exposure of the first lady and um, and, and Barrett, I truly follow the rule that, you know, family should be off limit. And so I just hope that Barron particularly Um, particularly since I knew him since a baby, that he has recovered and he is doing better um, since he's had COVID.
1: And I, I, you know, Barron is a teenage kid. So, he, you know, his parents are his parents, right? But I do wanna ask Melania, a lot of conversation, a lot of talk about her absence from the campaign trail. We we know that in 2015, 2016, she was very visible uh, or more visible than she has been now. And, you know, that second debate, it looked like she was, you know, pushing his hand away. And, you know, we've heard all these rumors about their marriage and their relationship. And I'm not really asking so much about their marriage because, you know, I'm not that interested in that. But I am interested in the role of the first lady. Uh, and we haven't seen her take the kind of active role that we've seen other first ladies uh, take, you know, previously. What what do you make of that? I mean, you, you were inside the White House. How does she view her role? Uh, as the first lady and why aren't we seeing more of her? Well, Arriba, I met uh, Melania while she was still dating
0: Donald back in 2003 (laughs) and 2004. And uh, when they initially got married, they had a loving marriage. I can tell you that as I revealed in Unhinged, I certainly believe that they are on the verge of divorce based on episodes that I witnessed with my own eyes and seeing some of their fights when I was in both of their presence. But I also think that she's repulsed by him and she can't wait until they're out of office so she doesn't have to deal with him ever again.
1: Yeah, it sure looks that way from those of us that are looking from the outside inside.
0: Yeah. I want to
1: ask you about so many people, Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, Kellyanne Conway, all of these people that during that very contentious you know republican primary leading up to the election were so critical of donald trump i mean they were incredibly critical you know their their videotapes television clips of some of the comments they made about him but once he got into office we've seen them you know make a 180 degree change what is it about donald trump that you know what does he possess that allows him to get people, again, super successful people like senators, U.S. senators, Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, to make the kind of flip that we've seen them make? Well, I,
0: I don't even pretend to understand the brain of Ted Cruz particularly, um, especially if somebody insults your wife or your spouse, then I definitely wouldn't ever support them, but that's exactly what we saw Senator Ted Cruz do. Um, in the case of people who have previously opposed him and now they support him, it's simple because if you go against him and you want to remain in the Republican party, he will destroy you. He will primary you. He will find a candidate to run against you and he will make you drain all of your money. Then he will blackfall you from any of the Republican institutions that allow you to have any social contact with people. and. Then he'll go on Twitter and attack you and stick his
1: entire
0: maggot army onto you and make your life terrible.
1: And I guess you experienced that, obviously, uh, when you wrote Unhinged, and we saw that with so many other uh, members of the, the Trump team that left the office and uh, wrote books. Uh, he calls he's called you a dog. He's called you. Uh, low down liar, you know, uh, lying, you know, low life or, or something to that effect. How does that just, you know, on a personal level, someone that you knew that you had a lot of respect for, that you worked for, that you went into his administration to do good work for, to, to be called names like that? How does that make you feel? Well, my grandmother always taught me, it's not what they call you, it's what you answer to.
0: And I have seen him attack so many beautiful African-American women. He most recently called Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, a monster. He's called Maxine Waters, low IQ. He has attacked black reports. He has insulted athletes, African-American athletes. And so the name calling, it didn't impact me because that's not what I answer to. Um, And I know who I am, but more importantly, I know whose I am. And so those names don't impact me because I truly have a center and understanding that God is the head of my life. And Donald Trump, regardless of he's sitting in the Oval Office, God is sitting on the throne and he is the author and finisher of my faith and he's writing my life story. So what Donald Trump does, his infantile ways, his immaturity, but particularly the name calling, I have never allowed it to impact me because I think it illustrates just more and more how he does not have what it takes to fulfill the duties of this office, and a lot of that is class,
1: grace, dignity, and intellect. You, you know, Senator Kamala Harris, hopefully soon to be VP Harris, just said something very similar uh, when asked about him calling her a monster. You know, she said, "Look, that—that's what kids on a playground do." And he doesn't understand that this isn't a playground. You know, this is the this is real right. life, and these are you know lives of millions of people at stake here. I do want to ask you, though, about the staff. And and I hear what you're saying about Ted Cruz or anyone in the Republican Party. He still he has so much control over that party right now that if they go against him, if they oppose him, you know, they fear, as you said, getting a primary opponent in their own election, uh, having his entire MAGA army come after them. But what about some of the other staff that you saw in the White House, more career staffers who are not political by nature? Why haven't we seen more of them come out? and tell us about the corruption and the chaos in the White House. Do you have any sense about that? Well,
0: I think we've seen quite a few. I I think that we've seen quite a few. I think Donald Trump is unique in that he has had more books, critical books, written about him in his presidency than any president in the U.S. history. And so there have been people who have come out and written about their experiences, including myself. Um, And the reason why I believe that my book has been so successful is because people wanted to know. What was really going on in that White House? They wanted to have that behind-the-scenes look of the decision-making process, his engagement with world leaders, and in fact, how he does deal with the staff. And that's what I tried to accomplish um, in sharing my story in Unhinged.
1: Well, obviously the book was a huge success, New York Times bestseller, so congratulations to you for that. Thank you. For someone who hasn't read it, I actually tried to go and buy it and it was sold out. So again, congratulations to you. (laughs) You want to get it. You got to go online and order it because we are on the fourth. We're
0: on the fourth printing. And I just heard from Simon and Schuster um, that the book is also sold out in Europe, but they're they're doing another printing. So.
1: Please. But but of course, I've read tons of excerpts from the book uh, online and, and I want to ask you and, you know, different uh, journalists have interpreted what were some of the most revealing allegations uh, in the book. But I want to get your opinion about that. What, what do you think mm-hmm. are some of the most revealing uh, allegations, things that people just wouldn't have known? But for this book, you know, what are they going to learn? Uh, when they do get their well, code, because they ordered it online. When Donald said to me that he wanted to be
0: sworn in on his book, The Art of the Deal, instead of the Bible, I think that that was really, really shocking to people. Um, when they, they, the revelation that uh, Donald Trump never read any of the early briefing material that most presidents will read going in and um, that he chose a lot of the people in his cabinet because of their looks and not because of their qualifications. Um, I think including the stories about his family, about Melania, about Ivana, Ivanka, Don, and Eric, um, those revelations were just kind of revealing for people who didn't know that Donald Trump had such a strange relationship with his daughter. I do write about his saying that he wanted to have sex with her and that kind of thing. I mean, those were things that people just couldn't believe, but have
1: since seen the pattern
0: of behavior
1: in their engagement. We've heard a lot, uh, Amorosa, about Trump's, as you just talked about, his short attention span, uh, his, you know, not wanting to sit down and and, uh, be brief, not reading the briefs that were presented to him by the intelligence uh, agents that work for the United States. What do you recall about the early briefings as it relates to Russia in particular? You know, was he receptive? Was he, you know, uh, did he reject those briefings? How did he respond to those Russian briefings in particular?
0: Well, uh, I have to be very careful because I do have a top secret clearance and I can't at all reveal classified materials. So I'm not going to be able to answer that, unfortunately.
1: But you did you have said and you said in your book that he did not. Uh, like most presidents, take very seriously the briefings. And, as far as you can you know surmise, he didn't even read the briefing books that were presented to him.
0: Yeah, I could talk in general about, clearly, he never reads, and he didn't take his briefings very seriously. A big part of the drama that I lived through was, of course, the Mueller investigation and impeachment, and having to, you know, talk with Mueller and his team. And then having all of that stuff dumped, thank God most of my testimony was redacted because um, as, as I stated, a lot of the stuff that I shared was out of that classification. But um, I think the hardest part for people to process is that Donald Trump has a mental decline. And I'm making this observation as someone who's known him for 17 years. I know what it was like to sit in the boardroom with him for five, six, seven hours while we were taping those shows and how sharp his mind used to be. I can also tell you that his decline is very severe that there were often times that Donald Trump would look up and not realize what day it was. He wouldn't know who, he would look at me and say, who are are these people, you know? And and I would say, oh, that's such and such from domestic policy, or he's the guy from state, you remember? And he would just have this look on his face where you could tell something neurological was going on. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I am someone who has observed him long enough to tell you that something was going on with Donald Trump's decline.
1: Do you think that was, you know, others in your environment, in that environment, did they, you know, see what you saw? And was there any conversation amongst staff about this decline and what should we do about it? Yeah.
0: And, you know, I talked about um, a nickname that we had. I shouldn't call it a nickname. It's more like a hashtag. We would text to each other in the middle of meetings, particularly tough meetings with him. And it was hashtag TFA, which stood for the Twenty Fifth Amendment. That meant we were hoping the Calvary would come in and save us, and somebody would do something about what we saw because his behavior was alarming us and concerning us so
1: much. Do you think that you know when we hear the president uh, mispronounce words like you know Thailand and uh, you know Yosemite, and uh, that that is a part of this decline that you notice, or is he just being careless with language?
0: No, he, it's neurological. I mean, I just watched him try to drink water and a normal you know, adult was able to pick up the glass and Donald required two hands to lift the bottle. He had difficulties walking down a ramp.
1: At some point you decided to leave the White House. There's some controversy. I know you say in your book that you uh, resigned. I know John Kelly, who was the chief of staff at that point, said you were actually asked to leave, you were fired. But what for you was the moment that you decided that, you know, you needed to get out of there?
0: Well, it was very clearly Charlottesville Um, and Charlottesville was a breaking point for me. And I wanted to jump up and leave that day. And I talked to one of my really close mentors who said, if you leave now without putting things in place, particularly for the HBCU conference or the funding that was coming down for small business and that sort of thing, then you'll leave a whole lot of people hanging. And so I had to map out an exit plan. Um, in terms of the, the controversy about my leaving, I, I like to remind people that the press secretary of the United States stood at the podium and said, Omarosa will be leaving. She's decided to resign and she'll be departing on the 20th. Um, and often people remember that. And then they also remember the pattern of behavior for Donald Trump, that when people leave and they say something he doesn't like, he then accuses them being fired, which is what he did with probably 20 other staffers, including John Bolton, uh, Mattis, all these other generals who have left and been critical. And then he'll say, well, they left, but I fired them when, you know, that's not the case. But I am grateful that I had an opportunity to serve my country. And I will actually say to anybody that's watching this, if you have a chance to run for office, to jump into the public arena and be of service. I think you should take advantage of that because we need new leadership. We need people who are bold enough to go into spaces where there may not be others who look like you. Everyone won't be thinking the same ideas that you have or to have the same perspective. But we need people with courage to go and be change agents in difficult places and be a voice for those who have no voice and to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. And so I look back on my time, and I can't believe it's been three years ago. And here we are a week away from the election. Um, but I can just say I am grateful that God has kept me through all of that. And there's no question that God has had his hand on my life, because how can you explain a little girl with learning disabilities growing up in the Westlake projects after her father's via murder, to go and serve not just for one U.S. president, but for two U.S. presidents, and then to go on to be a bestselling author? I know that can only be God. And so even though my journey has been rocky, it has been worth it. And um, I am so grateful that you've given me an opportunity to share with you and your viewers uh, a little bit about my journey and my story and that unique time that I spent at 1600
1: Black Lives Matter Plaza. Boy, what a difference from when you went in and to what we're seeing in the White House uh, today. And you're right, Black Lives Matter plaza. Just one last question for you, you, You talk about that diversity and diversity being so important and I totally agree with you. We know Trump is trying to silence so many voters across this country with voter suppression efforts. Fortunately, close to 70 million people have already cast their ballot. What would you say to anyone out there who's sitting on a sideline saying, oh, "I may not vote this election or my vote doesn't matter or you know all politics are dirty or all politicians are crooked. What advice do you have for, for anyone that's thinking that about this election?
0: I will first say that if I'm a part of um, the election protection team as a part of the national bar association. And so we're working on the front lines to make sure that the vote is protected. So if you have any problems and you're voting, or if you can't find your registration, you can at me at Omarosa, I'm at Omarosa on Instagram and on Facebook. You can reach out to me and I'll connect you with someone, a, a lawyer who's trained to help protect your vote. But I want to say that your vote is your voice. The only way we're going to transform this nation and give back some semblance of normalcy is if you vote and that we actually understand that we are facing the biggest crisis we ever had in this country. And it is the battle between right and wrong, the darkness and lightness, and someone who wants to bring good to this nation and not continue to divide it. And the only way we're gonna be able to do that is if people get up, get out and vote.
1: Well, on that note, uh, we will leave it there again. Anyone that hasn't read uh, Omarosa's best selling book, Unhinged, an insider's account of the Trump White House, make sure you. Uh, go to your local bookstore, go online, uh, purchase a copy of it. Lots and lots of shocking. And you've got to sign my book too, Ariva. I want you to sign my book. And Mama wants her to sign too. I will. <laughs> and i got to give you a shout out about your work with autism. Uh, you have supported the work that I do here in Los Angeles around autism. And I know that that's work that you are continuing to do. So big shout out to you. Uh, and in memory of my sister who was autistic.
0: Um, and you've met her a couple of times before she passed away. Um, I will continue to be a voice and fight for autism.
1: I have met your sister, and you know, my heart goes out to you. Your mom, who I absolutely, positively love, uh, always there, always working hard, always boots on the grounds. Uh, best of luck to you, Amorosa. I'm sure there are lots of big and amazing things as God is, as you said, writing. You know, the story of your life. Again, thanks for sitting down with me and. Our best wishes to you, and we're going to keep our fingers crossed about this election and make sure that everybody that we know uh, gets out and vote because our vote is ours. So again, thank you, thank you, Reba. Thanks for joining me for this episode of a special report. Please take a moment to share, subscribe, and rate this podcast. I always want to hear your thoughts. You can share your comments with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn by following. At Arriva Martin. Thanks and be safe out there.